Good morning, Mountain View. Thanks again for joining us. I'm really excited to be here and to be wherever you are uh, with you. And uh, last week we started this series called Scattered. And what I did is we kind of did an Old Testament survey uh, of the entire of the entire Old Testament, and we started looking at how God. Uh, started this thing called the church using a couple of families, individual families like Adam and Eve and, and Noah's family. But then he moved to Abraham and he created a nation. And then that nation, you know, struggled. They, they sometimes followed God, sometimes wouldn't follow God. Uh, this nation continued to struggle. And eventually they sent, God sent Jesus after a period of silence and, and the church was birthed after Jesus came and God in the flesh lived among us showed us a better way to live, died for the sins of the world, was buried and rose again, and now sits at the right hand of God. And so this is the whole story of the church, which is really, really cool because today technically would be the day that we call the day of Pentecost, the day of the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2, 40 days after Easter. And, and here we sit today, and although we're not going to talk about that specifically, we are going to begin looking at the book of Acts, and we're going to study this. We're going to see how God has used his church, his people, to do remarkable things throughout history. One of the things that I love about world history and church history is that often they coincide. Often you can read about what, what, what's happening in global events throughout the history, and, and you can look at what church history, what's happening within church history, and often there is some similarities. You can see how these two affect one another. And so one of those is this. In the late, mid to late 1700s, there was a lot of tension. And there was some tension in the country of France, and there's tension in the country of Great Britain because of these horrific social inequalities. All right, and yes, I'm using that word, social inequalities. And it was it was the early days of what we call the industrial revolution. And this industrial revolution is when the inequality between the rich and the poor just got bigger and bigger and bigger, and the gap between them increased quite a bit. And so in France, there was this thing called the Revolutionary War. Maybe you remember that, and it was a bloody, bloody revolution. People died all over the place, and there was death and, and bloodshed. Yet in Great Britain, it was a very different story. It was a very different outcome. What happened was remarkable, and most historians agree that Great Britain started what's called the Great Awakening instead of a bloody revolution. And so the Great Awakening lasted for decades Decades is, is an understatement. Historians tell us that over a few decades of the Great Awakening, over half, maybe, maybe 60 to 70% of the population of the British Isles turned to Jesus and joined the movement of the church. And then this continued for a few more decades, and it was a great healing among the people. Do you know why? Well, because the rich received this new truth, and the rich received this new power, and they received this new mindset that they had never had before. They'd never experienced before, and this helped them become more generous with their resources, and they gave to people who were in need. And not just that, but the poor accepted a new power and a new truth and a new mindset also, and they became more self-disciplined, and they put a lot more effort into what they were doing. And so this moved them towards self-discipline that they'd never had before. And it was during this great awakening that I'm talking about that, that the slave trade in Great Britain was abolished. 
It was in the same time period that the relationship between management and the workforce, what we would call modern-day unions, unified and worked together as opposed to being opposed to one another. And this was the first time ever that child labor laws were introduced into government law. It's amazing. And, and during this time period, child literacy increased drastically. And it was because of this that historians in our current society, as they look at all the things that are going on around us, all over the world, in our own country, in our own city, and they say, wouldn't it be great to have another great awakening? And although I'm not a historian, I think I wish for a great awakening too, don't you? And this awakening took place, and it was amazing. And the reason that this awakening in the 1700s took place is because 2,000 years ago from today, something remarkable happened. And it completely remade society as we understood it. And it was one of the greatest civilizations in the history of the world. And nobody disputes that nearly 2,000 years ago, there was a small group of ordinary, everyday people who believed Jesus was the Son of God. They believed Jesus was God in the flesh on earth, who came to earth in the flesh. He died on the cross for the sins of the entire world, and he was buried, and then he was resurrected from the dead. This group of people, they had no political influence at all. They had no educational expertise at all. They had no cultural influence at all. They had no power in negotiating economics. So no economic uh, negotiating. And they were, they were, they were powerless. They, they, were, they were not influencers. They were not politicians. They were none of these things. However, within 200 years of the disciples beginning this church movement, the gospel truth spread, and it was accepted by millions of people in the Roman Empire. And they experienced a peace and a joy that they couldn't understand, that they couldn't even uh, comprehend. They never knew this before. And so the gospel became a leading force in the Roman Empire, in the Roman society, which was falling apart. And, and the church, Christians, Christianity became this glue that held everything together. And in the third century, the Roman Empire had to make a conscious decision to acknowledge that Christianity and the Christian society actually existed. And the Christians were crucial in holding everything together. So, so much of this information is written and documented by eyewitnesses. What happened over 2,000 years ago? was written by a historian named Dr. Luke. And he wrote it in the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, which we're going to look at for the next few weeks. And if you want an awakening, if you want a revival like I do, we have to ask questions. What would it look like? How would we do it? What would need to happen? What would be the power? What would be the truth? What would be the mindset that we would need to have? How could we accomplish it? What would be the consequences, good or bad, that would allow us to have this great awakening, that would allow us to have this, this revival, this transformation in our society? And I think the way we get those answers is we dig into the book of Acts. And the first chapter in the book of Acts shows us what the original ethos 
Ethos means origin or, or, or essence or foundation. And so what the original ethos of the church is, if we want to get back to that, we have to study it. And then we have to apply what they did to us. What is the origin of Christianity? What is the foundation of Christianity? What is that essence or that ethos of Christianity? Here, here's part of the problem. Most people assume they already know, especially in Western American culture. I mean, most everybody has been in a church at some point in time. You've attended a wedding, maybe attended a funeral, maybe attended a baptism of a niece or a nephew. And so we've been in church. And, and although we may not be considered a religious society anymore, the average person probably knows a little bit about what the religious background is. Most people think they already know enough about it to make a decision whether they like it or not. And maybe we do, maybe we don't. But if we all understood what the ethos or the, the foundation of Christianity is, then why in the world is it not transforming our culture? Why in the world is Christianity being questioned instead of burning through the hearts and souls of people, allowing for people to have peace and allowing people to find this joy that lasts forever? What, what, what is going on if we really truly understand the origin, the essence, and, and the ethos of Christianity? Then why isn't Christianity more influential today if we really understand it? Because this is what I know. When, when the ethos of Christianity, when the essence, when the origin of Christianity has been understood, it has become a vigorous, non-stoppable, perpetual force in society. And so maybe, maybe we don't understand it quite as well as we think we do. Because I look at our society and I say, where is Christianity bringing that peace and joy, that unstoppable hope, that unstoppable peace, that unstoppable joy that we can't get anywhere else? Because unfortunately, somehow Christianity has been reduced. And we believe what Christianity means is this narrow-minded, this, this guilt-producing machine, this 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 place where if I have a need, people can turn. If I have a problem, if I'm weak, then I can turn to it. This is not the ethos of Christianity. It, it's not the origin of Christianity. It's not what Christianity is about at all. Maybe we understand, misunderstand Christianity more than we understand it, than we realize. And so what I hope to do today is just look at a few of these verses in the book of Acts. And we can begin to define what the origin, what the essence, what the foundation and the ethos of Christianity really is. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 1. We're going to look at the first three verses right now. It's also going to be on the screen for you. It says this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And so Dr. Luke starts his letter out, and this is what he says. I wrote to you already about the things that Jesus began to do. Such an important choice of words here. And what's Dr. Luke talking about? Well, he wrote a gospel. Dr. Luke's gospel is named after him. It's called Luke. The Gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. And then he also wrote this second book called the Book of Acts, 
recording for us what the acts of the apostles actually were. And so there it is in this first sentence. He says, I've already written to you about the things that Jesus began to do. The ethos of Christianity is about something Jesus has already started, something that Jesus has already began to do. It's something that Jesus some things that Jesus has already done and some things that Jesus has already completed, but there's this continuation. It's not finished. It's not complete. It's not done. And so he wrote about these, these starting things of the, of the Jesus movement, the way, in his first book called the Gospel of Luke. And this is the reason that Christianity is so important. This is foundational. Christianity is about what Jesus has done, not about what I have done. Not about what you have done. Not about what we have done. Not about what all Christians throughout history have done. Christianity, foundationally, fundamentally, the ethos, the origin, the fundamental, most important foundational truth is this. Christianity is about what Jesus has accomplished and what Jesus is going to accomplish. And, and most people think Christianity is a crutch for people. Or, or some people on the other side might think Christianity is a great model of love and forgiveness, but they also believe that all good people can find God somehow, and Christianity might just be one of those ways to actually find God. Huh, no wonder Christianity struggles in our culture. See, Christianity is not at all about being good. It's not at all about what I can do for God, because Christianity is only all about what God has done for us, what, what God has done for us is he has accomplished it through Jesus. And so what happens? According to the first three verses of Acts, Jesus reveals himself to have been the one who suffered. Not just the one who suffered, but the one who died and then rose from the dead. And this is why Luke writes, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering as many proofs. Do you see it? Jesus suffered, suffered, such an important word for us. We can almost get lost and we can almost miss this. Why did Jesus suffer? Why did Jesus have to suffer? And it goes all the way back to the Old Testament, which we looked at deeply last week. And the Old Testament gave us a lot of commands and told us how to live. And the Old Testament was filled with rules and commandments about how to be a good person and how to contribute to society and how to do the things that, that we really wanted, that God wanted us to do. It was also filled with a lot of blood and guts, to be honest with you. You could never go to the temple to make your connection with God without having something bloody in your hands. There always had to be a sacrifice in your hands when you entered the temple to make your connection with God right. And so sacrifice was essential. It was crucial. It was absolutely necessary for us to have a relationship with God. So this is why. This is why Jesus had to suffer. Because it's not enough being a good person. Why? Because even the greatest of people fall. Even the best people we know mess things up, get things wrong, and we leave a residual, and we leave a wake behind us, and, and then suddenly because of our sin and because of these wrongdoings, we build a barrier between our connection between us and God, and so there's a punishment for this, and there's a price that has to be paid, 
And so Jesus, he suffered. This is what Luke tells us. He suffered. Jesus had to stand in between us and God and become that price, become the punishment so that we could have that connection with God between us and destruction. And so Luke writes, for the next 40 days, he appeared to many to prove himself alive. Jesus was alive. He wasn't dead, and he proved to many that he was alive. Jesus showed up, and that's so important because he continues to show up. His presence is real. And the disciples didn't say, by the way, none of them, when Jesus appeared to them, oh, we knew it. We knew it. We knew you were going to come back from that. I mean, he told them, but they didn't believe it. They couldn't believe it. Nearly all of first century Jews uh, didn't believe in the resurrection of a physical body. They, they couldn't believe it. They, they didn't believe it. They didn't accept it. They never imagined that God would become human in the first place. And, and then secondly, that, that humanity could actually uh, raise from the dead. When Jesus showed up and said, I'm alive, his people were harsh critics. They said, we don't believe you. How could it be? No way. So here's a question. If all we had was Jesus' teachings... If that's all we were left with, that Jesus was buried and he never rose from the dead, or he did raise from the dead, but he never appeared to people as proof of, that he was alive, we could easily just become good people. And, and we could convince people that he was alive. But if we are saved by Jesus' teaching alone, or we are saved because we are a good person, then it puts it back into our control. And it's not our work. It's the work that Jesus has accomplished. And so the ethos of Christianity is not about what I do. The ethos of Christianity is all about what Jesus has started to do, what Jesus began to do, what Jesus will do, what Jesus will continue to accomplish. Jesus has just begun. Man, Christian, hear that. Jesus has just begun. He's not finished. This is a theme that we talk a lot about at Mountain View, that he who began a good work will bring it to completion, according to Paul in the book of Philippians. He's just started. And this is what Luke writes to, to Theophilus. He says, listen, I wrote to you about all the things began. Let me tell you more because he is alive and he is working. And the founders of every other world religion, they started some work and when they died, it ended. They completed it. It was finished. But not so with Jesus. Jesus, God in the flesh, was on earth, lived among us, died for the sins. He suffered for the sins of the world. This is what Luke's saying. And he was buried and he rose again and he is alive and he proved that he was alive. He appeared to hundreds of people to say, I am alive. This is the ethos of Christianity because Jesus is not dead. He's just begun. He's not finished. This is great news. And so let's look on to Acts chapter 1. We'll look at this again next week. Verse 4 says this. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Verse 6 says this. So when they had come together, they asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then verse 9 says this, 
And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Man, if I could be a fly nearby at this moment, it would be one of those moments that would just be absolutely remarkable because Luke writes, he's like Peter and John are standing there and they're just staring up into the sky because Jesus was just lifted up. After those 40 days, he was just lifted up. See, Jesus has not only, only died and risen, he ascended. Jesus has been taken up and right now he is sitting at his proper place at the right hand of God. And this is another aspect of the ethos, the foundation, the essence of what Christianity is all about. What does it mean? It means that Jesus doesn't go up, up to get away from us. Jesus goes up to take his proper place so that his work can continue. So his work will not stop. See, Jesus in this moment, Acts chapter 1, it's really just begun. Why did Jesus go up? Well, he told us why. Do you remember John chapter 16, verse 7? He's talking to his disciples. He said this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, meaning the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And this is a powerful moment where the disciples are listening. Jesus says, I've got to go up. I've got to take my place at the right hand of God. I'm sending you a helper. A couple chapters before that, Jesus is talking. This is what he says. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. This is why at Mountain View we say things like this. We want you to be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and do the things Jesus did. Why? Because this is what Jesus said you'll do. This is what he told his disciples. You're going to do the things I do. And greater works than these will he do. Meaning, Jesus anticipated that you and me, 2,000 years later, would accomplish even greater works than what Jesus actually accomplished. And this is what Jesus said, because I'm going to the Father. And so when Jesus ascended, that's what we call it, the ascension, when he ascended, it doesn't mean that he's no longer here. The ascension means Jesus is here and all over. When Jesus ascended, he didn't just leave us. He sent us a helper, the Holy Spirit, meaning that Jesus is present all over the place. When Jesus was on earth, you had to find Jesus to be able to see his works. You had to follow him. If you wanted to see up close and personal what Jesus could accomplish, you had to be with him. He could only do and he could only teach through one human body, Jesus, right? And today, Jesus does his work through millions of human bodies. When Jesus was on earth, he restored souls. That was, he was in the business of restoring souls, but he could only do it where he was physically. And the ascension means that Jesus is now present in us and Jesus is present through us and that his power radiates through the throne in heaven out into the world through us. And I think sometimes we forget the importance of the ascension where he, when he ascended into heaven, we can open our Bibles and we can read our Bibles. A lot of us do that. We sit down and we pray and we worship and we talk to people about Jesus. We, we, we just 
talk a few sentences about who he is and what he's accomplished in our lives to somebody who doesn't know him. And sometimes we even open our hearts and we practice generosity and we do something for somebody in the name of Jesus. And when we do these things, when we sit down and we read the Bible and we sit down and we pray and we tell somebody about Jesus or we open our hearts and we practice generosity, we do something kind in the name of Jesus. What do we expect? See, I think if I'm to confess that sometimes we approach these practices with little to no expectation, with maybe hoping that if I open the Bible and I read the Bible, if I pray to God, hoping that if I do something kind in the name of Jesus, for somebody else, that maybe, maybe I can gain just a little bit of a small amount of inspiration for my own heart. Man, if Jesus rose from the dead, not just rose from the dead, but if Jesus ascended into heaven and he's sitting at the right hand of God and we have the power of the Holy Spirit in us because he sent us a helper, we shouldn't expect just a little inspiration. We should be expecting a revolution. We should be expecting a transformation. We should expect that, that, that everything would change in us and through us and around us. And every single time, every single time we come to worship, whether in person or online like we're doing right now, if Jesus ascended, not just suffered, not just died, not just rose from the dead, but if Jesus ascended, then right now, he's up there at the right hand of God. Right now, he's sitting next to God, the Father of the universe, the creator of the universe. And he is continuing what he started. He hasn't stopped. His plan is still the same. It is what Jesus began to do, and it's what Jesus began to teach. Do you see what Luke is writing about? you see it? The ethos of Christianity, the essence of Christianity, the foundation of Christianity, the pillar, however you want to say it, of Christianity changes everything. Literally changes everything. Because Jesus, he faced the punishment for us. And now he works his power out from heaven through those of us who are striving to become more and more and more like him. And do you hear it? See, if we understand this, then we should abandon our small ambitions. We should reject our small ambitions. We should repent from having low expectations. We need to stop looking at the problems in our life and think, well, they just always have been. They always will be. I'm stuck in them, right? We should start. We need to stop looking at our bad habits and our addictions as if they're just a part of who we are. <laughs> we need to stop looking at the troubles in our neighborhoods and, and the troubles in our city. And, and right now there's plenty of them. And the troubles in our state and the troubles in our nation and the trouble in the world as if they are mountains that can never be moved. Don't you remember what Jesus said? That faith the size of a mustard seed can move mountains. If Jesus ascended and he's sitting at the right hand of God right now, I can pray for a great awakening. I can pray for a revival 
and a revolution. And I can pray for transformation. And I, and I should repent of my small ambitions and my low expectations. And I should expect that God is going to do something great in me and through me. And that God's going to do something great in you and through you. And we should pray and long for that awakening. In a lot of ways, this whole COVID-19 thing, and it's opened the eyes of a lot of people. I was just reading this week that one of the number one Google searches on Google is how to pray, how to read the Bible. Why? Because this pandemic has forced people to consider the afterlife. Ask the question, what's after this? It's forced people to consider their relationship with God. Why? Because in the midst of this pandemic, God has been knocking down our idols. All of them. If your idol is sports and you worship sports, guess what? Stadiums are closed. No games are being played. <laughs> what else are you going to do? Maybe pause and think about our afterlife. Maybe pause and, and, and think about our relationship with God. If you're God, you idolize musicians. The concert halls are closed. No concerts are, are being done. All concerts are canceled. For those of us who have been uh, fanning the admiration of actors, and, and we get our peace and we find our solitude in the theaters or watching movies or, or guess what, you know, our, our primetime TV shows. For even others who have bowed down to the altar of money, the stock market, guess what? That false God disappointed too. Knocked down. Gone. And so in the midst of all this, God has been knocking down these idols and these gods that we have worshipped. Wow. And honestly, even now you can go out and you can see the fear, you can see the stress. You can see the worry on people's faces. People need hope. Hope. They are searching for a light at the end of the tunnel. And right about the time the light is reached, wow, we have another major crisis. And another crisis. Right when we see the light at the end of the tunnel and we find ourselves, we're just overwhelmed with more stress and more worry and more panic. And we say, how in the world can we get out of this mess? And I've learned, Hollywood can't save us. They can't. There is no blockbuster film or movie or actor who can get us out of this. I've also learned technology can't save us. I've been overwhelmed with technology. I'm thankful for technology. This is my connection with you. I, I praise God that we have technology, but our smartphones, our computers, our TVs, man, all they do is send us a barrage of information that heightens our stress, increases our anxiety. <laughs> Guess what? Our lawmakers our senators, our representatives, our president, our Supreme Court justices, our governors, our mayors, <laughs> they can't save us either. They can't. Hopefully they'll work together and do what they can, but the outcomes 
all of the outcomes are outside of their control. And maybe for the first time in a long time, our entire culture is realizing we need God. We need this hope. We need this peace and this joy that is only found in the person of Jesus. And so this is my prayer. It's been my prayer. I'm not praying for answers. I'm praying for the answer. And the answer is Jesus, who ascended and is sitting at the right hand of God. And Christian, he wants to use you. He's given you a helper, the Holy Spirit, to be his salt and his light, to be witnesses, to be his ambassadors, to go and be hope bearers and hope givers. And hope has a name. And his name is Jesus. We're not alone. We're not alone. I don't know how long it'll take. I, I don't know how long it'll take before we have peace, before we'll have reconciliation, before we'll have a cure for COVID-19. I have no idea how long any of this will take. But you know what I do know? Jesus is our hope. He is our answer. And he loves each and every one of us. And he longs for a relationship with us. And so I challenge you this week to begin this prayer. God, Jesus ascended. And he sits at your right hand right now, continuing his work. How do you want to use me? How, how, God, do you want to use me to create a revival, to cause transformation, to start a revolution where people find a hope and a peace and a joy that is everlasting? We're going to sing this song. Would you begin praying this prayer while we do? God, how do you want to use me?